have your Bibles, uh, you can open up. We're in Revelation 2 and 3 at the moment, and uh, we started last week by looking at how Jesus, this image that we see of Him in Revelation 1, if you haven't been here for the last two weeks, or if this is your first Sunday here at Anchor Church, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, which shows us Jesus like we've never seen Him before. It's not the Jesus that we remember on the cross it's not the Jesus that just walked on earth. It's not the Jesus that's the historical figure or the, the moral teacher or the religious leader. But we see the resurrected, glorified Jesus as He is in His full spiritual reality. And God shows us Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus, not only from Him, but of Him, who He is. And it is such an encouraging image. When you read Revelation for the first time, and you read Revelation 1 and you see the Jesus with his face shining like the sun and his eyes full of fire and a double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth and his feet like burnished bronze and the sound of his voice being like the sound of many waters, rushing waters, like standing at the base of a waterfall and hearing the waters crash down. When you, when you see that Jesus, it can be a little bit overwhelming. Am I right? How many of you have read Revelation 1 and be like, you know what, I think I'll come back to this book later? when my faith is a little stronger, because right now this Jesus is scaring me. I'm going to go back to the Jesus that's carrying the lambs, you know, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I'm going back to that one because this Jesus just got serious, okay? I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way, but that's the Jesus that we encounter in Revelation 1, and uh, we see how that word apocalypsis, Revelation means an unveiling. So it shows us Jesus in all of his might, and all of those parts of of how Jesus is represented, uh, it shows us something about who He is. But you under, when you understand that Jesus goes from there to talking to the church, to talking to His people, to addressing these seven churches in Asia Minor or in the Roman province of Asia, when you understand that these churches are up against it, that they are being persecuted, that they are being thrown in prison, that many of them are being killed, that they are facing all kinds of trappings and temptations and difficulties, then you begin to feel more comforted by the image of Jesus, who is the Jesus who is all-powerful, who sees all things, who knows all things. Um, I told the story last week about how uh, when I was 15 years old and I was playing rugby and after my under-15 under game, um, I was standing uh, at the top of the stairs uh, next to the field and uh, one of the first team reserves had it in for me that day. And he came up to me and, and um, he grabbed me by the front of my jersey and he said, you need to go and wait in the change room because the first team is going to come and sort you out. I don't know what I had done. I had just supported the team. I, hadn't been, I wasn't shouting for the other team. I'd done nothing wrong. But he just probably didn't like my face. Um, and uh, and he, he grabbed onto my jersey and he said, you go to the change room. The first team is going to come and sort you out. But what he didn't know is that my dad was standing behind him. And so before he finished his sentence, my dad had grabbed him by the back of the neck and proceeded to carry him, stretching out his vertebra pretty much as far as it could go, down a flight of concrete stairs all the way to the field and unhanded him in front of the principal. And uh, what I realized when I read Revelation 1 is that when life is coming against you, when the devil, when the enemy is coming against you, when society is coming against you, when you are being persecuted for your faith, when you are facing situations that are bigger than yourself, the Jesus that you want in your corner is that Jesus. It's the Jesus with eyes of fire who knows the hearts and minds. It's the one who can wage war with the words that proceed from his mouth. 
It's the one with burnished, feet like burnished bronze being able to execute judgment and make change and bring about restoration and do all those things. And He is the Jesus who loves you. He is the Jesus who cares about us. He is the Jesus who stands in the midst of the lampstands, as we've seen. And those lampstands are the seven churches. That is majorly encouraging to me because I can promise you that church planting and starting a church and building a church and, and, and trying to take ground in the kingdom, it's a fight. It's a fight. Everything gets thrown at you when you decide that you're going to stand up for Jesus, that you're going to do something to cause the kingdom to advance. Things come against you. There's attacks that come against you. Paul says he doesn't want us to be unaware of the devil's schemes. And so it can be a real fight when you uh, plant churches. I remember hearing this from a pastor many years ago where they were screening and interviewing church planters. And sometimes when I have church planters coming to me saying, we know that you've planted, we know that you stepped out, how did you do it? Um, I ask them the question that this pastor asked his guys um, that wanted to church plant. And the first question that he asks is, have you ever been in a fight? Because if you haven't been in a fight, you probably can't plant a church. Because that's what it is. You're going out to take ground for the kingdom in a city that the enemy wants to blind and, 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 and overwhelm with all kinds of distraction and temptation and evil. You're literally signing up for war when you do that. So the first question, if you want to plant a church, have you ever been in a fight? If you've been in a fight, you might be able to start a church. The second question is, and I'm just repeating what this pastor said, have you ever shot someone? Because if you've shot someone, you can definitely plant a church, okay? It's a fight. The church is in a fight, and that's why we called our message on Revelation 2 and, uh, 2 and 3 the fight of faith. Paul says, I want you to fight the good fight of faith. And so we know that there's a storm. We know that there's a fight. But what we also know is that our God, the one who has laid his hand on our shoulder just like he did for John in this vision, is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the one with eyes of fire, the one with a face shining like the brilliance of the sun, shining at full strength. He is the one who stands in the midst of his church. And so really, coming against the church is a bad idea. Coming against the church is a bad idea. Gamaliel mentioned this to um, the Pharisees who wanted to destroy the early Christian church. He said, if this is not of God, it won't survive. It'll just be another wind of religion, another doctrine, another philosophy, another human thought and human endeavor. It won't survive. But if this is of God and we fight against it, he said the words, we might find ourselves fighting against God. And that was such wisdom. Here we are thousands of years later. And the truth is, is that God has still sustained and protected and fought for and upheld his church. So the church really matters to God, and you really matter to God. You matter to God. Why do we so quickly think that He would allow us to be lost, allow us to be forgotten, allow us to be overwhelmed, allow us to... Have you ever wondered if your life was just going to drift off the edge? Like, is God with me here? The truth is, He is standing in our midst, and He has set you in this family and he addresses us as a family and as a church, just like he spoke to these churches in Asia Minor at this time. And uh, we see that there are three big things that as the church we have to fight and we have to remain faithful through. One of the most encouraging things for
for me that's come through in the series. And it's like, you know, when you, when you buy a new car and it's like a specific car, then it doesn't matter where you drive, you see that car everywhere. Like before you never noticed it, but now you notice it. It's kind of like that. I'm just like seeing this truth everywhere this week. I'm like, I want to tell everybody in every context and situation this truth. And the truth is, is that because Jesus has already conquered, we conquer simply by remaining faithful. We conquer, we overcome by remaining faithful. And so Jesus says, I am the one who was dead and now I am alive. I am the one with eyes of fire. I am the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. I am the one who is the ultimate conqueror and I have victory over all and I have the power of life and death in my hand. Nothing else can come against you. And with that knowledge, he says to John, I want you to write these letters to the churches. I want you to speak to the church. I want you to tell the church this truth. And so it's a moment for us to take in the encouragement that comes from Jesus himself. It's Jesus' last word to the church. He says, here, this is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to know. And to each of the churches, he has something that he commends, that he says, this is amazing about you. I'm so grateful that you're doing this, which is so encouraging to know that when you're faithful, when you serve, when you do the things that God has called you to do, that he sees your faithfulness that he sees your heart, that he sees your efforts. People get discouraged if we haven't honored them enough here in church and we do our best to honor everybody and to recognize our guys or whatever, but there are so many things that you do that we don't see. How many of you know that when you give and the majority of the people in our church give anonymously and they give and they think, I wonder if if anybody sees this, but the scriptures tell us that when you give, your Father in heaven sees that you give. And so it's encouraging to know that he sees the good things. There's commendation for the church and for your life. But there's also a warning. He also says, but this I have against you. And this is where we come to the fight of our faith, that the enemy is not just letting us go. He's not just like, oh, I've I've lost this one. Let them just go and reach the city and share the hope of Jesus and make a difference in people's lives. No, we're being resisted. We're being resisted by the evil one. And Jesus says, I want you to know this because this is the fight that you're in. And I want to encourage you that if you keep your faith in me, if you keep your eyes on me, if you continue to stand in my grace and you stay faithful, you will wear the conqueror's crown. You will stand in eternity with the reward. And so Jesus begins to speak to these churches and and he mentions the three things. And the the first one we looked at last week, was the fight against compromise. The fight against compromise where the church begins to take on all the values of its culture and it essentially gets assimilated and swallowed up by the culture of the city that it's operating in. Now we are for the city, we are not against the city. How many of you know that there are too many churches that are known for what they're against rather than what they're for? Right Now we are against some things, but that's not what we focus on. We'd rather focus on the things that we're for. But there are certain aspects of our culture that we do not conform to. We don't bend to social pressure and to what the world thinks is right and wrong and to what our generation accepts or doesn't accept. We hold true to the Word of God. Amen? Come on, we don't compromise. There's a temptation to compromise and there's a temptation for us to give in to whatever the the, the passing thoughts of of the 
generation is. And so Jesus speaks to the church. He says, I love that you've got this. He, he speaks to the church in Ephesus and he says, I love how specific you are. There's two ways that you can compromise. The first one we see in Ephesus, he says, you are so doctrinally correct. You've resisted those with false doctrine. You've resisted those who called themselves apostles and they weren't. You tested them and you found them to be false. You took responsibility for your own beliefs and you searched out the scriptures and you didn't compromise. But this I have against you. You left your first love. There's almost a direct correlation in churches and in leadership with how high somebody's theological thinking is and how much they lack love. Jesus is against that because God is love. We're here to, to have God make his appeal to the world through us. How can we possibly do that without love, without accepting people, without welcoming them in, without being like the prodigal father who throws his arms around prodigal sons and kisses them much? How could we represent God to a world if we have theology without love? If you have theology without love, Jesus' word to you this morning is repent. Repent. The word teshuva, let's return. You've forgotten who your God is. Go back to Him. Go search the Scriptures. Go read about His love. And with your doctrine and with your theology and with your beliefs, remember that the core of who God is is love. And love people like the Father loved people. Don't compromise on love. He then switches it around with, with one of the later churches where he says that you have got great love and the works that you do are greater than what you did in the beginning, but you've just accepted the world's cultures and pagan beliefs and all kinds of other things into your beliefs. In other words, you're not holding fast to what is true. I've met Christians like this, you know, this week they're reading revelation and they just love it and they're just talking about how great God is and then next week they're reading The Secret or some other philosophy or you know some other you know new age vibe and they're like yes it's Jesus and The Secret it frustrates me you know why it frustrates me people say well you know we should be tolerant and that truth isn't exclusive that it that you know we should accept your truth and my truth are different but you know that truth is necessarily exclusive. It has to be exclusive. Because if I said to you, four plus four equals eight, is that true? We have to exclude seven. We have to exclude nine. We have to exclude ten. But what our world says is, you know, four plus four is six. What do you like? Seven. What would you like? Nine, is that your preference? Ten. Let's just make four plus four ten so you can feel great. It's not love. It's not love. I love my boys, so I teach them what's true. And I teach them also what is not true. And God is saying that people have love and they think that love means to just tolerate. But often love means not tolerating and not, not, not being harsh, not being doctrinal, not being cold-hearted, but leading people in what is true just like a father would lead his child in teaching him what is true and what is not true, because what is not true is only going to harm your life. So Jesus says, I'm so glad that you guys have love, but make sure that in your love you speak truth. 
that you hold fast to what is true. And so this is so important. He speaks to these churches, uh, to the church of Ephesus and the church of Pergamum and the church of Thyatira, and he mentions these things. And today we're going to continue in the second part. So the first fight is the fight against compromise, but the second part is the fight against conflict or the fight against persecution. There were churches facing real persecution, and we are in a time in our world where being a Christian is more and more taboo. You will be labeled a bigot. You'll be labeled a homophobe. You'll be labeled, um, you know, uh, exclusive in your thinking and judgmental and whatever other label you want to put on it. Many people today don't even want to mention the fact that they are Christian because the moment you mention it, you will be labeled as racist, misogynistic, um, just whatever, whatever label goes with it, they will put that label on you. And say, so if you say you're a Christian, that means you're narrow-minded, you're judgmental, and can we be honest and say that sometimes we earn that label for ourselves, right? By having the doctrine, perhaps, without the love, we created that, that storm that we're now living in. But many times, it's just because our faith offends. Have you ever noticed how it's, for most Christians, un, people's unbelief doesn't threaten us, but our faith threatens their unbelief. It disturbs the comfortable facade, and it begins to, to disturb that, and it begins to, to, to make an unsettling noise in their souls. Have you perhaps missed it? They figured out, they like, well, where did we all come from? Okay, evolution, it's got holes. But let's go with it, because then we don't have to ask the question, what if there's a God? And so, somebody once said that the two tenets of atheism is that there is no God, and I hate Him. Right? Never seen anybody be so passionate about hating something that apparently they believe doesn't exist. I heard Matt Chandler once say that as Christians, we don't walk around going, oh, unicorns! So irritating. I must write a book about how they definitely do not exist. Why do we not get upset about unicorns? Because even though they are the national animal of Scotland, they do not exist. We don't get upset about that. Nobody is passionately protesting the existence of unicorns on Facebook. Nobody's starting chat groups and, and writing books and, and going through all the mythology of, of unicorns to find the holes and to publish it and to make our voice known about it. Why are we not passionate about unicorns? Because they don't exist. But apparently atheists who believe that God doesn't exist are also passionate about hating him at the same time. G.K. Chesterton said that if there were no God, there would be no atheists. The problem that we have is that we have a world that desperately does not want to believe because they don't want to submit to what believing means or could mean for their life. You see, if there's a God, it means that there is a judge. And if there's a judge, then the way I live my life matters. And they don't want that. They want to live in any way they want to live. It's like when my boys want to do something naughty or your kids, they want to do something that's, that's naughty. They don't come and do it in the living room in front of, in front of mom and dad. They go to the side of the house. They go hide themselves somewhere because they want to be able to do what they know is wrong 
without being confronted. And that's our world. They want to do what they know is wrong without being confronted. And unfortunately, because we stand for truth, it's confronting. It says, no, you can't do that. It's not in your best interest. It's not in the best for your life. It's not God's design for who you are. That's grace, that we can speak to people about God's design. There's so much blessing and richness and goodness in what God has for us. And so we're called to, to direct, but we, when we do that, there is a spirit that comes against us, and it picks up in the form of, of, of conflict that we face, violence that we suffer as the church. Sometimes we suffer violence at the hands of the world for saying certain things that are wrong, are wrong. But more often than not, in the church, we actually face greater violence at the hands of the religious you know, when Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, just like Jesus stood, and he said, my conscience is clear before God. What did the religious people do? Slapped him in the mouth. And this world will slap us in the mouth the moment we say that we are righteous. If you say, I stand in the grace of God, and there is nothing that stands between me and, and, and him that that he has dealt with all my sin and that I have a personal relationship with him, religious people will want to slap you in the mouth just like they slapped Jesus, just like they slapped Paul. Say, who are you to be righteous? The religious people will enlist you again to a works program that will make you earn it. And so the church in this time, as now, faced persecution both from the religious and from the world. The religious and the irreligious in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, Paul describes this. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This is the hope we have in Jesus. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. That's so important. We're persecuted, but Jesus hasn't forsaken you. This is what John's thought was sitting on the island of Patmos. He said, I'm here. I'm persecuted. I'm exiled. All my friends have been killed. But Jesus says, I haven't forsaken you, and I haven't forsaken the church. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In other words, when you face the hardships, when you face the persecution, when people speak badly against you, you can know that God's life is on the inside of you. He's your strength. He's the reason why you can be hard-pressed, but not crushed hard-pressed but not destroyed. Jesus said that if the world hated him, it would hate us also. It would hate us for the message that we share. No one likes the guy in the room who doesn't get with the agenda, right? Especially if you're planning to go out and do something, you're like, oh, this isn't exactly right, but you know, that, that one guy who goes, guys, I just don't agree, I just don't think this is the right thing for us to do. Nobody likes that guy. It's like, well, get out. Go do your own thing. We, we, we don't want to be confronted. And so as the church, we're often ostracized, criticized, discredited, and outright mistreated. This is why some of you struggle to mention that you're a Christian in your workplace. The persecution has, 
has brought fear that makes you grow small. You wonder, will it affect my career? Will it affect my standing with my boss? Will it affect my, my standing with my colleagues? Can I be open? Let's just be honest to say being open doesn't mean you have to be weird, okay? That's, again, one of those reasons why people don't like Christians because they think being Christian also means that you have to do dumb stuff sometimes. Like, if you're walking around with olive oil in the office anointing your colleagues, I mean, your heart is in a good place, but it's probably going to irritate them. They're trying to, like, type on their computer and they've got, like, their eyes burning from olive oil because, you, you know, Nacho Libre baptisms where you've got like bowls of water and you like when they're not looking smash it's not going to work right that is not how we lead the world to Jesus how about you do your work and you live your life and you and when God gives you the opportunities you pray for those opportunities you share an encouraging word you pray for someone you do something but make it within the context of normal life because some people get on a trip, and sometimes it works, and God honors their foolishness. I know God's done that for me. But sometimes we've actually created more resistance by not working in wisdom. I remember reading a book on evangelism, an old, old book, hundreds of years old, that said that evangelism is wise work. We've got to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. And so let's not create resistance because we're actually offending people on purpose. Let's be smart in how we do it. But even when you do it in that way, we will face resistance. We will face persecution. People will come against you for many reasons. But in our world, it's still tame. In our part of the world, compared to many other parts of the world where Christians are killed for their faith. In certain parts of Indonesia, for example, I know... Um, through the Abelove Church, uh, Pastor Eddie, Eddie Leo and, and other pastors out there, that when they ordain pastors, senior pastors, most of them in their early 20s, the family gathers at the ordination and they're all in tears because there's a good chance that in that part of Indonesia, those pastors will have two or three years to live. To live. Because when you're ordained, you're immediately a target of the radical religious movements that exist in certain parts of Indonesia and you'll most likely have your head cut off at some point for saying, yes, I want to be a pastor. Yes, I want to lead the church. Yes, I want to disciple people. You'll be put to death. What, what price are we paying? What price would you pay? At what point would you walk away? I've heard some of those people who have had their children killed their loved ones killed, their houses burnt down for preaching the gospel. And I think sometimes I wish that we could take the entire Western church and just send them there for a month and bring them back. I think we'll have revival. Because there, if you say that you're a believer, it's not nominal, it's not comfort, it's not preference, it's not self-serving. It's a belief that Jesus is real and he has a message for the world and that we are going to be a part of getting that message out no matter the price we pay. Jesus speaks about the wisdom of those who did not love their lives to death. Did not love their lives to death. But he speaks about us as comfortable Christians, and we'll get to that, and he says that their belly is their God. 
what they can consume, what tastes good, what feels great. That's my God. And sometimes we merge the Billy God and Jesus Christ into one sort of weird religion in our church, in the Western church. Yes, I serve Jesus, but as long as all my comforts are met. How many of us, when everything's going great in our life, oh, we worship, we're happy, we're joyful, we're singing. When things go wrong, you're like, God, does, does he even exist? Is he still here? Because our faith is a little bit too much in comfort than it is in the God who sustains through every season. And so we're called, Jesus calls us to remain faithful. These people had their families killed, loved ones thrown in prison, many of them put to death, torture and imprisonment. And a high level of commitment in our world is people coming to church two Sundays in a row. That's like, you're amazing. Two Sundays, like one week and then another week. So holy. I think we've set the bar a little bit low in terms of what we're called to do. But there was a kind of extreme persecution that's faced by some churches today that was faced by these churches. And so apocalyptic writing as a literature, as a form of literature, is often there to encourage people who are about to face difficulty. Oftentimes, when you even get a prophecy or a word from God, a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom, I found this to be true in my life. When I get this, this prophetic encouragement in my life, it's because God knows that there's going to be a season of testing, a season of challenge. So He encourages you because when you face that challenge, you're like, oh, God knew about this already. And He's already promised me that we're going to get through it. And that's what he does here. He speaks prophetically through John in this word of prophecy, encouragement, exhortment. He says, you're going to face it, but you're going to get through it. Why? Because I'm going to be with you in the midst of it. That's what Jesus says to us, and it's what he said to his church. So he speaks to the church in Smyrna, and there's no complaint against Smyrna, but here in Revelation 2 verse 8, it says, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. In other words, he is the conqueror of death. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You see, there's a way to be rich in this world that isn't connected to the material things that you can own. And then there's a way to gain the whole world and yet at the same time lose your soul. And Jesus says, I know that you're in a bad spot. I know that you're poor. But spiritually, eternally, in the things that really matter, you are rich. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear for what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who remains faithful will not be hurt by the second death. And so Jesus basically says to this church, you don't have to fear death because I'm the one who died and came to life. The scripture says in, in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
If our eternal future is secure, what can man do to me? What can this life do to me if I have a place in heaven? Jesus says, I see what you're going through. And even though you don't have much, you are rich. And I see that these ones who call themselves Jews, and what would happen here is that the Jews were against the Christians in this early time and would stir up trouble with the Roman government. So they would go to the Roman government and they would say something that they would make allegations that many times our world is making about us right now, our conflict right now. The Jews weren't going to the Romans saying, hey, there's these Christians. I know that you guys thought that they were a part of our belief, but actually they're not. They're completely separate from us. They're a sect, and we don't believe what they believe. And uh, here's the thing about them. It's not just that they're mistaken about the Messiah. It's actually that they are evil and dangerous. They are evil and dangerous. We see this in the book of Acts. The Jews went to the Romans and said, they declare another God, another King of kings and Lord of lords, and they refuse to worship Caesar. So they used the fact that the Christians wouldn't compromise against them to persecute them. And that's what our world says about Christians today. They're not just saying, oh, Christians believe that there's a God and there really isn't, but that's okay. Let them have their, their thoughts and their philosophies and their beliefs. It's not offending us. That's not what our world is saying today, is it? What they're actually saying is the church is not only wrong, but they are evil and their beliefs are dangerous because we won't submit to the ruler of this world. That's the persecution. We're evil and dangerous. And so the Romans, hearing that, this, that, that you know, the Christians are not submitting to the worship of Caesar and that they're apparently evil and dangerous even though the Christians were going around praying for people to be healed, uplifting communities, giving to people in need, right? They were called dangerous. What do you think would happen to globally the poor people of our world and the hurting of our world without the church? Think about all the counseling that happens, all the generosity that happens, all the, the outreach that happens, all the positive things that happens, all the, the hospitals that have been built and, and the universities that have been established how much better our world is because of the church. But the enemy doesn't look at that. It just says these people are evil and dangerous and we must rid our world of them. And so this is what happened to Smyrna. And so Jesus says they're a synagogue of Satan, which is an interesting concept. The concept is, and the thought is, that it's actually the devil himself that's behind the persecution, but he stirs up the world against us. Listen to what it says here. It says, the devil, in verse 10, is about to throw some of you in prison. Now, how many of you know that Satan didn't manifest and grab some Christians and throw them into prison and quickly lock it? No, he stirred up the Roman government to do that. And so, that's why the scriptures say that our battle, our fight, is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies. In other words, when, when people come against us, we don't retaliate against the people. We pray against the spirit 
directing the people. Because how many of you know that anybody who's ever said a bad word against you, anybody who's ever slandered you, anybody who's ever come against you, how many of you know that Jesus loves that person and wants them to be free of that deception? And so the response to persecution is love. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. We love those people because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the enemy. And so, we're not to be afraid of the synagogue of Satan. We're not to be afraid of what the devil will throw against us. It tests our faithfulness, but we can be faithful even to death because we know that Jesus is with us and we won't be hurt by the second death. There's an old saying that goes, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born once, you'll die twice. You'll die physically and spiritually, which is eternal separation from God. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. If you're born physically and then reborn with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit as you put your faith in Christ, you might die physically, but you'll never die spiritually. In that moment, you will receive a heavenly dwelling, a heavenly body. And as the scripture says, mortality will be swallowed up by life. And so we thank God that we've been born twice and will not be hurt by the second death. A second church that was persecuted was Philadelphia. And to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, right in Revelation 3, verse 7. So like I said last week, I'm not going chronologically. I'm I'm not reading through the passages. I'm grouping these churches and those that faced compromise, the fight of compromise. These are the two churches that were in the midst of severe persecution. So the second one that is facing the fight of conflict is is, is Philadelphia. Revelations 3, verse 7 to 13, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, who opens a door and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, Jesus says. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a similar promise, a promise of eternal life, a promise of a place in the heavenly city of Jerusalem, which we will see Um, as we go through the book of Revelation and as we uh, come towards the the latter end of of Revelation. But I love how when there is a stuff coming against you, how God will open a door that no one will be able to close. And He will close doors that no one will be able to open. That's majorly encouraging to me. You know that when we looked for a, a venue for Anchor Church, when we were starting out, 
the first round, the first time we were looking, we looked at 47 different venues. We then had to move from that venue as the restaurant we were in was sold, and we found another venue that we couldn't afford, but we, I kept bumping into the owner in, in, in uh, uh, Doppio, which was my office at that time, because we didn't have offices yet, and, and, uh, and I kept bumping into him, and eventually we just, in one conversation, we did a deal, and we moved in there, and our church grew. And then that venue got a court interdict against it, and they weren't zoned correctly, and we weren't able to have church there. And for one week, we had to meet in the Lone Hill Park. We called it a family day, but it was actually a we have no church day. We have no building day. And when we were there, we prayed, and we said, God, open a door for us. The next Sunday, we were here. We've been here for two and a half years now. Many, many other people had attempted to use this facility but God ordained it for us. And so many times we think that there are certain opportunities in our lives that if we don't do it absolutely right and we don't approach it absolutely correctly and, we don't, and it makes us tense, it makes us think like, I've got to say the right words and I've got, to, I've got to present myself in the right way and I've got to approach things 100% correctly, otherwise I'm going to miss this opportunity and this opportunity and this opportunity. You know what the truth is? The truth is, is that if God has ordained something for your life, no one can shut that door. Even when the persecution comes, even when people outright try to stop you. I don't know how many times I stood in people's offices, and this is how the conversation would go. I was like, hi, we're looking um, for a venue. We're looking for, you know, this much space. I think at the time we were looking for 300 square meters or 600 square meters. We're saying, hey, can we, 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 we want to rent at market-related prices, I would lead with that because that kind of gets them. Market-related prices, we'll pay. But we're looking for a venue. Okay, well, what, what, what is the venue for? And I kind of be like, no, it's for a church. Um, actually, at one point, I said something along the lines of, we're basically a community of people. It's just like, it's a community of, and we have coffee, and we, um, you know, collaborative workspace. And also church, you know, like, just like trying to be so clear. And the moment I said the word church, they would just put the pen down. They were like, flat out policy. Even Christians themselves going, we have a policy, no churches. How many of you know when God opens a door, no one can shut it? Don't worry about the persecution. Don't worry about who's coming against you. Just know that when God is for you, no one can be against you. He will open a door that no one can shut and shut the doors that no one can open. The final fight that we have as a church, we have the fight of compromise, the fight of conflict and persecution. The final one is actually the most dangerous of all. The fight of complacency. The fight of complacency. This is the fight that happens not when you're facing hardship, not when you're trying to take on the world, not when you're being persecuted, not when you're disturbed, not when you're, you're going through hardship, but when you're not going through hardship. When the church isn't being persecuted, when, a, when, when people are not coming against us and throwing us in prison, when, when, when we're left to ourselves and we become comfortable. And that is the real threat of our church here in the in, in what is a westernized region of our, of our continent. A real threat. So we're just complacent. We're just apathetic about Jesus and whether he exists or not. 
Romans 12, 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And we worship like we've got somewhere else to be. That's how we worship because we've become complacent. We forget that we're actually worshiping a present Jesus here. So these remaining churches that Jesus speaks to, they're in a totally different situation. There's no persecution. There's no great hostility or attack. But they're threatened by something far greater. They're threatened by comfort. They're threatened by prosperity. They're threatened by success. And it threatens their existence as a church. Their influence as a church. The first that Jesus speaks to is the church in Sardis, which is like a modern day Hollywood. It was known for its arts and its crafts. A a place of great opulence. They were the first to mint coins of gold and silver. In Revelation 3 verse 1, Jesus speaks to them. He says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And, you will not, and if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know, know what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have, you have still, sorry, a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. There's no commendation for this church. Jesus essentially says, I know that people think you're doing great. Your stage is big, your lights I don't know what they used for lights back then. Maybe like candles and like mirrors or whatever. But like, your lights are awesome. You know, your, your pastor's good looking. Your, your welcome team has got all the great signs. And you have the reputation of being alive. But you've lost your faith. You've lost the virtue and vitality of true dependence upon Jesus. You're comfortable. He says, wake up. You're busy sleeping. And like a thief that comes in the night, the return of Jesus is often described in this way, like a thief who comes in the night, when people are are not expecting him because people have convinced themselves he's not even coming. If you knew that a thief was coming to your house in the night, guess what? You'll sit up at the window waiting for him. It's the parable of the ten virgins that we read about Five of them allowed the oil in their lamps to run out. The other five, they stayed vigilant because they said, I know that Jesus is coming. He's returning. And so we've got to be ready. But when you're comfortable, you're no longer living as if Jesus is coming back. You're no longer living like there is a reward for what we do on this earth. You've let go of the urgency of faith. And you're living according to comfort and preference. Jesus says, wake up because I'm going to come and you won't be ready. You won't be able to walk with me. He talks about blotting out our name. And that actually refers to how some cities blotted out the names of those who were executed out of citizenship. But Jesus assures them that if you remain faithful and in that way conquer, including those that are being condemned by society, Even if you're being condemned there, you won't lose 
your citizenship in heaven. That's the citizenship that really matters. The final church that Jesus speaks to, if you'll allow me five minutes to wrap up Revelation 3 this morning. But the final church that Jesus speaks to was a city called Laodicea, which was really like a modern-day New York. A modern-day New York. It was the leading banking center of the day. And Jesus speaks to them in Revelation 3, verse 14. And he says, And to the angel in the church of Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. What that you would were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing the thing behind the thing, the unveiling. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. What a sad state to be in when you think that you're rich but genuinely you're poor. To think that you're clothed in in glorious garments, but really, you're naked. Jesus says, you think, I know, you think, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I counsel you to buy gold from me, to buy from me gold refined by fire, true riches, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove, Jesus says, and discipline. He disciplines those in whom he delights. Jesus doesn't write these things to the church because he hates them. He's not against his own church. That would be like being against your own body. He is for his church. And that's because he delights in us. He corrects us. He disciplines us. And he points us in the right direction. So be zealous, he says, because you know I love you. Be zealous and repent. Turn back to me. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church in Laodicea says, we're rich, we've prospered, we have success, we need nothing. Jesus says, you need to get your gold from me. Question to us as the church this morning, where are we getting our gold? The Bible says where your heart is, where your treasure is, sorry, there your heart will be also. How many of us pour thousands of rands into our own luxury. What car we drive, what, what, what TVs we buy, what homes we live in, thousands of rands. But then find it too painful to give anything towards the kingdom of God, to give anything towards the church, anything towards the furthering of God's story of redemption. Oh, it's a massive sacrifice I could never give that much money, but you drop it in a heartbeat for something new to put in your house. And I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about where's your treasure? Because Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If your treasure is in heaven, your heart will be in heaven, seated with Christ. But if it's here on earth, you will spend every waking moment building up treasure here 
where Jesus says, rust and moth destroy. There's a type of treasure that you can work for your whole life, get to the end of your life and realize it all meant nothing. And then there's a way to live where you can work for something that has eternal value that you cannot lose. A great missionary who gave his life on the field, who was, who was martyred for his faith in reaching out to tribes in South America. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We are not fools when we give up the things that we can't keep in order to take hold of those things that are eternal. This is a perspective shift that might even offend your flesh this morning. But God knows it's life, it's joy, it's peace, it's full of blessing. That's why the scripture says, if you have an ear, then hear. In Hebrews it says it this way, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Receive what the Spirit wants to say. Because from Jesus, we get gold that is true riches, and we are clothed with white garments, which is merely a symbol of righteousness. The Scripture says those who have put on Christ and those who have been baptized have put on Christ like the putting on of new clothes. New, white clothes, righteousness. So we're not working for righteousness. We're not lukewarm. We're fervent in spirit. In this region in Laodicea, there were mountains that had waters that would flow down from the mountains that would wa were warm and would meet with a river or a stream that ran through the city that was cold. And in that city, Jesus uses this analogy because in that city, at the place where those two sources of water met, the water was lukewarm. And if you drank it, you would get sick. The lukewarm water would make you sick. God says, I'd rather have you be honest and not call yourself a believer than pretend to be and be somewhere complacent, somewhere in the middle. It's nauseating. It's not good for nothing. It doesn't refresh. What's interesting is that the warm waters had the ability to heal, and the cool waters had the ability to refresh. At least on their own, they had purpose. But you add them together, and they would only make you sick. And God calls us to follow Him and to put our hand to the plow and to not look back. Jesus says all of this, that he writes to his church, because he loves us. Those whom I love, I reprove, like a father corrects his children. So rather than hardening your heart in rebellion, know his love and turn back to him, is the message. He says, I'm knocking at the door. My desire is to have fellowship with you and my victory will be your victory. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches. Can we just pray? And as a church, repent of complacency and say, Lord, we hear your voice. Lord, we are your church. And Lord, we will be faithful and we will conquer and we will stand in your victory so that your victory will forever be our victory. Amen? Anchor Church, I want you to know that God is calling us to a higher level this year. Not a self-man-made 
we're going to walk around and tell everybody, well, we're better than you because we're on the next level. But coming back to the faithfulness of God's love, to keeping our eyes fixed on Him, to remaining faithful no matter what comes against us. Here's one promise I'll make you as the lead pastor of Anchor Church. We will never, ever, ever give up because we know the one who stands in our midst. And you shouldn't give up either. It's literally all you have to do in order to conquer. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and don't give up. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray together this morning.